Proverbs chapter 24, let's begin in verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displeases him. And it, and it, yeah, and it displeases him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin those two can bring. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause. For would you deceive with your lips? Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. All there it was, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your amazing word. We're so grateful, Lord, that you left it for us. You revealed your amazing plan in your word for us. We're so grateful for it. Bless your word to us, and we pray that you'd be our teacher. You'd help us make application in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been looking at wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Solomon wrote most of these um, scriptures, these proverbs. But later in life, Solomon turned away from a lot of this wisdom that God inspired him to write, which tells us that just because we have current obedience to God's word does not guarantee future obedience to God's word. Every single day we have a choice whether or not we're going to obey what God says to do or obey what we want to do, our flesh, our sinful nature. And God gives us that responsibility every day to either apply what we've learned or not. Even moment by moment, you could start out... How many of us have started the day out pretty well? Then by the middle of the day? Okay, by brunch. Um, We're crashing and burning. This will go with the other one, thank you. I tried to come prepared. Um, Anyway, so... What's interesting is that when you think about our daily walk and, and you think about how every day we're trying to walk with Christ... There are things that happen in our day that come at us, and 
It's hard for us to deal with. And God is so faithful. That's why it's so important to sow his word into our lives. Because as we do that, we get a greater and greater capacity to be able to have our mind renewed and to be able to react in a way that's correct and biblical. None of us make it. We all fall short. Um, and, and so there's no perfect days. I've had people say, oh, I, I did everything I was supposed to do today, 100%. I'm like, okay, well, <clears throat> maybe that's your one day in your life you get to do that or whatever. But, um, you know, we're, he looks at our motives. He looks at the things that he called us to do and we didn't do, not just the things that we shouldn't do that we did. And so we have to recognize that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And his, his word reveals that. And he, he, he says he's given, past tense. He's already given us everything to be able to live the life that he's called us to live. So we just have to appropriate those things and live them out. And ask for his strength, moment by moment. It's important to realize, and actually one of the things we're going to be talking about in the class, is the importance of not trying to live the Christian life in the power of our own strength. To just roll up our sleeves. If I had, you know, longer sleeves, I would do that. You know, roll up our sleeves in our own strength. Okay, I'm just going to try harder. He says, you have to abide in me. You have to dwell in me. You have to make your home in me spiritually on it, moment by moment, day by day. And as we do that, as we're dependent upon him and yielded to him, then his life gets lived through our lives. That's the fruit that he talks about, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit to minister to people, to, to be outward. He's called us to all to be outward. The false teachers teach that, we, that we, we're inward, that our focus should be inward and how we should you know, hoard life's resources on ourselves and have the best blessed life that we can possibly have. But God didn't save us for that. He saved us, those of us that know him, to be outward because God is outward. He's about caring about people and loving people. So we can't get away from that. And Solomon, towards the end of his life, he started disobeying these things, and he had all kinds of problems associated with it. So just because we have wisdom, mental wisdom, knowledge, doesn't mean that we're going to live those things out. We have to make a decision to do that every single day. And God gives us a way of escape when we're tempted to sin. If we take that way of escape, then we will be victorious. If we don't, we won't. And so God has given that instruction. Now, this chapter, and we've looked at the first 16 verses last Sunday, but this chapter is all about how do we interact with our enemies. There's enemies. I mean, you look at all the way through the chapter, you see enemies, enemies, the unrighteous, the wicked. You know, you see all these things. How we interact, not to be envious of them. Not to be stumbled by them. Not to think that they are something amazing and we're going to just you know, be like them and not get the bad things that are coming to them. We'll get the same bad things. So he's been dealing with that. And so now he talks about how we deal with our enemies related to when they fall. Notice in verse 17 he says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Am I the only one convicted by this? It's convicting. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. And it is convicting. And notice he says, in in the middle of the verse, he says, let. 
Do not let your heart be glad. So nowhere does he say you have to instruct your heart to get, hurry up and get going and rejoicing over these, your enemies when they fall and when, and when they stumble. It's automatic. It's, 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 in, it's in us. It's in our sinful nature for us to uh, rejoice in those things. <clears throat> and if you look in many different contexts, whether they're political or whatever, uh, in the news, current events, you just see people rejoice over their enemies falling. And we have to understand the Lord's posture towards the lost. It's very important for us to see that. How does God approach the lost? How does he deal with them? What, do you remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem? I want to quote him in Matthew 23, verse 37. <clears throat> he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's his heart. Those were unbelievers. Those were Jews, but they were unbelievers. Hadn't received him as the Messiah. (coughs) Excuse me. And he wanted them so badly. And he references... Because we think, oh, well, we can't have a heart for the lost because they're guilty. You know, they're, they're wicked. They do all this bad stuff. And God references, Jesus references that in that verse. He says, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to us. Wickedness. They're killing prophets. Killing people that God sent to them to tell them the truth about their, their situations so that they could repent. And they, they, how'd they repay those prophets? They killed them. He's saying, you who did that, you're guilty. I have wanted as a hen, you know, it's like chicks are gathered under her wings. How a chicken, a chicken does that, uh, I want to do that. I want to care for you. I want, but you are not willing. See, God doesn't force himself on anybody. He doesn't say, but you were not elected. He says, you were not willing. They could have, but they didn't. And so that's his heart towards the loss. I'm going to read you another passage from Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 where he says but when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd and right after that he tells us to pray for the to the lord of the harvest to ask for workers to go into the harvest field and, and to work so he had he was moved with compassion for them so god sees the lost and he longs to be their shepherd he doesn't take pleasure in their demise or when they die. See, God wants us to be like him. When you're a, a, a good parent, you want your children to be like you, the good things. <laughs> and you want them to learn from the bad things. But you want them to be like you. If you're good, if you're a good parent, you have good character, or a grandfather or grandmother, you want your grandkids or your kids to be like you. And he wants us to be like him. And his heart for the lost is that he loves them. And he wants them saved. He doesn't rejoice over when they uh, suffer a result of their wickedness. He doesn't celebrate. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says this. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So those that were in Israel that were wicked, he says, I don't rejoice in those people dying. I want them 
to turn. That's what I want, and we should want the same thing. But there could be such a disconnect between our hearts and the heart of God. And we think that it's okay because we see other people do it. It's all right. We should not rejoice in the death of the wicked. We want justice. It's okay to want justice, but God wants to, rec- he wants to meet out justice in his timing. And we have to accept that there is a timing for that. We want them to, it doesn't do anything healthy in us to want to, to, to rejoice when they fail and they stumble and they, you know, all those things. It is true that they will reap what they sow, just like it's true with us, we'll reap what we sow. And God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. But it doesn't mean that we have to celebrate it. We can acknowledge it, but we don't have to celebrate it. He doesn't want us to celebrate it. Remember Jesus on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Stephen did that as well as they were stoning him. So that's God's heart. We need to see God's heart in all of this. And then we see in verse 18 in our text, he says, this is the consequence. If we rejoice in those things, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And displease in the Hebrew means it, it's evil to him. So it's evil to him, to the Father, and he turn away his wrath from him. So he matter, it matters so much to him what our hearts are doing that he is willing to forego, temp, at least temporarily, something that normally would, would happen related to the wicked getting something that they deserve because he sees our heart rejoicing over it. And I don't know how he does all that, but I, I know that verse 18 is real. Lest the Lord see it, our hearts rejoice, and it displease him, which is evil to him, and he turn away his wrath from him. <clears throat> so he, it, it's so funny how you see him. Really, it matters to him what our hearts are doing. It matters to him what our, we're thinking. He sees all that. I love when people say, oh, you know, I, yeah, I know I did all this wickedness and everything, but God knows my heart. <laughs> yeah, he does. He knows our hearts. And that's not a good thing because our hearts are wicked. God's word says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's our hearts. So when Disney says for, to little kids, follow your heart, um, God's word has something else to say related to that. Because, you know, we have to recognize that our hearts are wicked before him, and he knows that. Jesus said multiple times, you being evil know how to give good, give, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He said multiple times to disciples, your hearts are wicked. When, I love the, it just shows how God can change a heart. When the apostle John, uh, James and John, they wanted to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritans. He asked Jesus, you want us to call fire down from heaven? First of all, where did you think you had that power? (laughs) It's like first question. And why do you think you can call fire down from heaven? And number two, why would you do that? Because they wouldn't arrange for us a place to stay now the apostle john later became the apostle of love he wrote first john he wrote all about that it's it's important for us to love and that's the the holy spirit's work in his life so if you say you know what i just have a problem with loving people and there's no hope for me because i'm an italian or i'm irish or i'm whatever and i have this this temper and i just i'm always going to have this temper and god can never work in my life to where i could be a loving person no that's not true because you're underestimating the power of the holy spirit's work in our lives 
If he can change the, you know, Paul's heart from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, God changed his heart and he changed the Apostle John's heart. He, he changed all these people's hearts. He's changed our hearts. He can continuously change our hearts and make us more like him. So he says, don't do that. And then he adds in verse 19, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. Now he's already told us, he, he told us at the beginning of the chapter last week about envying and, and evildoers and, you know, not desiring what they have. And it, it, there's a mirage or something that looks one way with how they are and their lives and whatever presents. We only see the outside. We only see the cars they drive, the house they live in. We only see, you know, all this stuff, their power and influence. We don't see all the other things. We don't see them addicted to things that they medicate themselves with to escape the pain and loneliness and emptiness of life apart from Christ. We don't see that. We don't see the traumatic things that happen. We don't, and, but he's even getting something far beyond that. We don't see what's going to happen at the end of their lives and, and, and how God's going to judge them even before that and allow them to reap what they sow. He's not going to rejoice over it, but he's, he's going to allow it. And God allows a lot of things to get us to submit to him he allows us to, gives us our own way, gives us enough rope for us to, um, <clears throat> to um, you know, get into trouble. He gives us enough freedom, I should say, to get, and then we realize, okay, we can't do this on our own. And sometimes it takes longer for others to learn that than other people. But we all have to know that, and he, he wants us to know that and, and not go back on that commitment to, to say, I know you know the best way to live, God. I know you know what's best for me. <clears throat> And so I'm going to continuously submit. But he says here, do not fret. Fret means to worry. So he says, do not worry because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. So there's all kinds of things that we can worry about. Worry, we're told in the New Testament, is a sin. It's, it's a sin to worry. And that's, again, convicting for us. And, and does it mean that God, you know, if we're prone to worry that, you know, he's given up on us and you know he's going to leave us now forsake us or whatever it's not the case at all but you know worry is connected in part to fear worry is connected in part to having to be in control sometimes that's as a result of of fear or insecurity and fear is or worry rather is it often connected to um, not trusting in or not knowing about God's sovereignty because there's a lot of things that we it appears are out of control when God is in control and he's wanting to teach us through circumstances and things and, and he works all things together for our good. And so he, he says, don't worry because of evildoers. Ultimately, nobody can do anything to us apart from God allowing it. I mean, he had to go and when, when the enemy wanted to attack Job, he had to get God's permission to do that. You had to, there's a filter of God's sovereignty. And, and so for us, we have to recognize, what can man do to me, ultimately? What can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from his commitment to us? His promises are unconditional. What can separate us from those things? There's nothing we have to worry about, ultimately, because we're in God's hands, at those of us that know Christ. So for us, we had to recognize that there's nothing that we should worry about. We don't have to worry about what evildoers are going to do. You know, oh, the state's getting more and more wicked. State of California. So I need to make sure that I 
move to Texas because it's, it's better in line with what I, you know, and all that. Do you realize how much liberal Texas is getting all the time? I mean, you're not going to escape it. There's liberals and there's people that have different views, and, or let's say that you're a liberal and there's conservatives, you know, whatever it is, there are going to be those people everywhere. And, and we have to recognize that God knows that there's, he's called us to be salt and light no matter where we're at. And God, look, God told the disciples, and he told the early church to, to walk in submission. Jesus said to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, talking about paying taxes. Paul and the other disciples, they talked about submitting to government authority. Now, what government was in power then? The Roman Empire. Way more wicked than the, the state legislature of California or any other state or you know, country. Way more wicked. The church has never been at a disadvantage because they have a government that is adversarial to, to their existence. The church in China is thriving. Thriving. Way more believers than here. And it's illegal to be a Christian there. The government's totally hostile to them, but they're doing great. They're flourishing. Persecution never hurt the church ever. God allowed persecution in the early church to get them to get out of Jerusalem and other places and scatter them like seed all over the world because he has a heart for this big world. But they were comfortable like we are, and they didn't want to go out and preach the gospel and all of that. It takes someone like the Apostle Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles to go out and preach the gospel, plant churches and all of that, and bring the gospel all over the place. So he says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about evildoers, and don't be envious of the wicked. And he points to their end in verse 20. Look with me there. He says, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Be no prospect for the evil man. No opportunities. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So what we need to understand is what, what's their end? You know, there was people in Scripture that were stumbled by the prosperity of the wicked. And, 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 and what always is the cure of that is understanding where it all leads. What's the big picture? The evil man doesn't have any security. There's nothing that they can trust in legitimately because they're, they're at odds with God. You don't want to be at odds with God. You want to be, have, be on his side. He's not on our side. We, we get to be on his side. So he says, there will be no prospect for the evil man and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. There's no eternal life for the wicked in the sense of life. There's eternal, they'll exist for eternity. They're going to get their own body. They're, they're going to get bodies to be able to face the great white throne judgment, to be there before Jesus. They're going to be resurrected for that and get bodies for that judgment. And then they're going to be cast in the lake of fire. And again, God's not going to be saying victory and celebrating at all. He's not going to be celebrating on that day whatsoever. And when we think about it, we shouldn't, be, you know, thinking about that in the sense of celebration at all. We should be grieved over those things. We shouldn't laugh at jokes about hell. It's a serious thing. People, it's real. People are there right now, not in the lake of fire, but they're in Hades right now. And there's no way they can get out. There's no way that, there's no second chances. There's that, Jesus talked about it. I'm going to believe what Jesus said over what anyone says. Even what I think about things, I'm going to take his word for it. It's serious. The light will be put out. 
Verse 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin those two can bring. Now, first of all, in the beginning of verse 21, notice that he's speaking to his son again. We've seen that as we've gone through Proverbs. We've seen him say, my son, my son, my son, my son, passing it on to his son. And he says, fear the Lord and the king. And I like the order there. That's the right order, to have the Lord first and have the king second. In um, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter basically brings this whole scripture up related to submitting to government authorities, to, to submitting ourselves to God's authority. And, and so he says here, fear the Lord and the king. You know, the Christians should be the best citizens the world's ever seen. And it's, it's, it's ironic to me that throughout the century, especially in the Roman Empire, but even today in many places, they see that Christianity is a threat to their government. When, when God's word says that we're supposed to submit to government, and we're supposed to do good. And we're supposed to love other people. And there's legitimately no threat from us. Those of us that are following God's word. <clears throat> but he says, the middle of verse 21, do not associate with those given to change. What does that mean? I believe it means those who attempt to throw, overthrow government. So what do we do? What do we, I mean, there's, there's revolutions, there's, th- you know, that kind of thing. But God's called us to walk in submission to the government authorities. He says, don't associate with those. So if there's people that are constantly trying to overthrow government and all those things, and um, obviously <clears throat> there are people that want to ca- wreak havoc and do damage and, and all those things to governments and those that are rebellion. He says, don't, don't associate with those. He says, for their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin those two can bring. Who's he talking about? Those two. He's talking about the Lord and the king. Because <laughs> God's going to judge us. He's going to, he, God is, the government is an extension of him. We read that in Romans chapter 14. You see that God is, an, the, the government's an extension of God and God uses government for his purposes. And if we're constantly trying to undermine the government, in the sense of wreaking th- havoc on related to things that are contrary to God's um, word and, and everything, then he's not going to bless us and there's going to be judgment. And he, doesn't, he says, who knows the ruin that those two can bring? The king and, and the Lord related to that. So we're supposed to walk in that submission. And, and ultimately, <clears throat> when we think about people getting what they deserve and all those things, you know, ultimately, the Great Commission should be what's in the, in the forefront of our minds. God always wants us to think about if people are saved or not. And there's all these movements and there's all these well-meaning things about that people can get involved in that are, that are they look good on the outside potentially. Let's do this, let's, we're gonna, and there, a lot of them come from a standpoint of let's make the, you know, our government <clears throat> as 
you know, as godly as we can, and we should. We should be influencing the government through the ways that God has given us to influence the government for good and, and all those things. We're called to be salt and light and, and, and everything. But if that happens to the neglect of being about the gospel, and we're focusing on those things to the neglect of preaching the gospel, because what happens when if, what happens if the whole church decided to focus on preaching the gospel? All kinds of unbelievers would get saved. And when they get saved and they receive Christ, their hearts change. And when their hearts change, now they want to follow Christ and they want to do God's will and all those things. They're going to start seeing things from a biblical perspective and a lot of things are going to change. So really the, the, the ultimate path to having a changed society is through the gospel. And there's a lot of things going on today in churches that don't have the gospel as a part of it in related to engaging unbelievers. And we don't have to have it only be evangelism things. We can have projects that we do for the community. We can engage and all those things. Those things are fine. But there should always be a desire to have the gospel be a part of that in some way. Even if it's indirectly through building relationships with believers that are a part of that with unbelievers so that they can get to know them and see that their lives are different and be able to preach the gospel to them. It doesn't have to be an official part of that ministry or that thing that's happening to have the gospel be interwoven through it, but there still should be an aim by the believers that are engaged in it to reach lost people, and it should be outreach in that way. So that's, that's the thing. We, we're not going to have heaven on earth. <laughs> you know, If you read 2 Timothy especially, if you read other passages in the scriptures, you see that things are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. Excuse me. <coughs> so we can't think, oh, if that if things get worse, you know, we're supposed to make kingdom on you know this kingdom, his kingdom on earth. It's not going to happen. But we can influence for good, and many many people can be saved. Verse twenty three. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. So we have to tell the truth. And it's getting, we can't show partiality to people. We have to be equal with our treatment of people. And we can't show partiality by by saying good things to somebody that we're supposed to be saying hard things to. True friends and true people that love people, um, I mean, what happens is, is that when we are showing people that love and we are telling them the truth, we can't, because we can't, for, for their sake of them wanting to, you know, treat us right or see us a certain way, we can't change what we say and, and be able to say, you are righteous, he says in verse 24. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse. Nations will abhor him. So we have to say the right thing. We have to say the appropriate thing to people. And he continues with that in verse 25. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight. And a good blessing will come upon them. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. So is it loving to rebuke the wicked? See, now this is where we have to get this right because it's not a simple situation. It's not a really easy thing to navigate. 
Because we're not called to be the sin police in this world. Where all we ever do, when people come in contact with us, all we're ever doing is telling them about their behavior and all those things. We are called to do that. We are called to speak the truth in love and be able to be salt and light. And we need to open our mouths and say, this is wrong. So don't misunderstand me. But the message that we need to have when we're interacting with unbelievers is that God loves them. And the, the most important thing for people that they need to understand is that God wants to forgive them. He does, and so we're not winking at sin. We're not saying that what they're about is right. We're willing to tell them the truth. But at the same time, we can't go around constantly correcting every tiny little thing that people do. And, and we're never, never going to get the chance to preach the gospel to them if that's all we're doing. So there's, there has to be a... A, a, a right way to be able to share with people the truth. And, and, he, and we just look at Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. You know, Jesus never winked at sin. He never condoned it. He never said, okay, this is okay. He, he didn't do any of those things. But he was so receptive to people in the sense of showing his love and all of those things. But he told them the truth. And they were, you know, sometimes we think, well, if we don't, if we don't tell them the truth, then maybe they'll be around long enough to be able to hear the gospel. No, we have to tell them the truth because you, you can't receive the good news until you first understand the bad news. Sometimes we have to tell them the truth about where they're at in life and all. We can't hold those things back. So we have to be willing to, at times, there's a place for it, but it has to be done appropriately to rebuke the wicked. He says, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. He who gives a right answer kisses the lips. So the right answer is talking about telling people sometimes that they don't want to hear. And we think, oh, well, it's not an expression of love if I tell them what they need to hear. No, it is an expression of love. We just have to do it appropriately. And that's the problem that we get into is we don't always do it appropriately and tactfully and lovingly and all those things. So there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And so God will help us as we grow and as we step forward and being willing to do these things, he will help us in knowing how to do that well. Verse 27. Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field. And afterward, build your house. Now notice there's a kind of an order that he's talking about in this verse. Prepare your outside work. Make it fit for yourself in the field. And afterward, build your house. It's kind of like he's saying there's priorities that we need to have. And we need to order those correctly. Don't build your house before you have your fields in order. And so that could, there's a, there's a proper order to life. And he hasn't called us necessarily to build a house. Maybe he has. Maybe you're a house builder and you're going you're gonna to build a house and it's going to be great and all of that. He you know, would say, hey, you need to make sure that the surrounding area is right. It's been surveyed correctly. It's been, you know, it's, it's been set up right to where you're going to build the house in the right spot and everything's taken care of. You have proper money to be able to finance that or whatever. But this goes even beyond, thing, beyond that. This is talking, and it reminds me of people that, young people that they want to get married, but they don't necessarily want to have a job. You ever, you ever had that experience? Or maybe you were one of those people. I don't want to have to get a job. I don't want to have to be responsible, but I want to be married. Or I want to have a family and all that. Well, you need to, be, you need to work hard. You need to, to support, be able to support the family. 
first before you think about that. There's a proper order for things. There's, there's a way to have your priorities a certain way that um, is using wisdom. And, and related to our spiritual lives, it's the same way. There's, we have to start with the foundation of, I need to walk with God every day. Now, you wouldn't think, and I wouldn't think that we'd be very healthy if we only ate once a week. We wouldn't be, you wouldn't be very healthy physically. It's the same way spiritually. We have to commune with the Lord every day. That can look many different ways. But he's called us to walk with him every day. That's the foundation. Then he builds upon that. And he builds upon that. But there's an order. There's a priorities that we have to have to be able to walk with him a certain way. That's why I'm excited. I'm sorry I'm talking about the Christian Foundation class a lot, but I'm excited about it because we get to deal with a lot of that stuff. One teacher I heard teach on this passage said this. He said, pressing things in life are rarely important, and the important things in life are rarely pressing. I'll say it again. Pressing things in life are rarely important, and the important things in life are rarely pressing. I thought that was so good. I thought I'd steal it. But I'm giving him credit. But it's true. Most things that are pressing they're, they're rarely the important things. The important things are kind of there all the time for us that we're functioning in, we're walking in, we're being responsible, we're taking care of those things. And he's talking about the priorities here of doing things appropriately and, and we have to put these things in the right context in, in our lives and how we function and do these things that are, that are um, necessary. So it's good for us to see that because he has a way that we're, he's called us to, to live and to walk and all those things. And when we do things according to how he is prescribed, then we have the life that he's called us to live. Verse 28. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause. For would you deceive with your lips? That's important for us to see. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause. For would you deceive with your lips? So it's important for us to speak truthfully related to our neighbors, anybody else, that we're not misrepresenting what they're doing. And that how people sometimes when they're in conflict, they misrepresent what the other party's doing. And, and so we have to recognize that God calls us to, to represent the truth fairly and appropriately and all those things, and he will bless that. But he doesn't want us to give false witness. We have to speak the truth, accurately portray the situation, Accurately portray what the deal is and speak the truth and do not deceive and do not uh, speak against somebody that doesn't, that's it's not appropriate. Verse 29. Do not say I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Do not say I will do to him just as he, now that's easy. It's easy to, because this is, this is touching on repaying evil for evil. God hasn't called us to do that. But it, it, it's, it's connected to verse 28. I want you to see that. Verse 28, 29 is connected to verse 28 because it's talking about someone speaking, being a witness against us without cause and deceiving with their lips. If someone does that to us, we shouldn't say, well, I'm going to do the same thing back to them and I'm going to speak evil against them without cause because they, they did it to me. <clears throat> no, we shouldn't do that. Because bad behavior doesn't justify other bad behavior. Now, in, in 
Romans chapter 12, we're told this in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of men. Paul also wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And then Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, and this is in the context of persecution. So they were facing people persecuting them, and he's writing to them, this church that, these churches that were dealing with incredible persecution. He writes this, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So even if people are speaking against us, we are not to return evil for evil in that way and speak evil against them. Jesus said, and, and, and it was, it's actually given in another place, but he said, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so he hasn't called us. Now, it's really hard to do that. You know, Jesus said again, love your enemies. I want to read this to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. How do we do that? That's impossible. In our own flesh, it is impossible. But with God, it's possible for us to do that. It's possible. And he says in that verse, to love, to bless, to do good, and to pray for those people, for our enemies. It takes supernatural power to do that. I need God's help to do that. I need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit to do that. I need my daily time with God to do that. In that moment, I need to ask for God's grace to be able to do that because my anger has risen up. I'm hurt. I'm devastated. But God says, no, don't return evil for evil. Love your enemy. Pray for those who, who spitefully use you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Have you been hurt by somebody? How are you responding? How am I responding? We have to do good to those. Not just not do anything. This is our first inclination. I'm just going to wipe my hands, boom, separate, have nothing to do with them. He doesn't say to do that. Jesus says we need to proactively try to help their life, try to benefit their life, pray for them, bless them. Who does that? Nobody does that except God. God does that all the time. He blesses us when we're, he blesses, it rains on the just and the unjust. He does all these things. He returned no evil for evil. He was rejected by his own. He still loved people. And, and he still did the appropriate thing for them in their life. And he's called each of us to do that. We need supernatural power to do that. Humility, it's been said, requires a good memory requires a good memory of our shortcomings and how we fall short and how God loves that person. And and that produces humility in us to recognize how much God has forgiven us. If we can't forgive people, we lose sight of how much God's forgiven us. If we can't bless people in the context of them blessing us or not blessing us and trying to hurt us, if we can't bless people with God's help, with God's grace then we're not, we're not doing what he's called us to do. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it, it does it. everything in us screams that we can't do that. We, can't, we don't have the power. God can give us the power. Rely upon him. Ask him for strength. Ask him for the power to be able 
to do that, and he will do it every single time. It's beautiful. Now, Solomon, lastly, references a uh, dilapidated field. Look at verse 30. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all grown, overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. And when he says in verse 32, I considered it, I considered it well, that word considered there means that he took it in in his heart. So he took it to heart. He's talking about Solomon going by the field of a lazy man, seeing all these things, and God spoke to him through seeing this field. God used that. I was talking to a brother recently who was walking by a tree that had fruit on the ground, and, and God used that in his life to communicate that there's all these people out there that need the Lord and that they're just hanging from the tree and they're not being harvested. And it broke his heart. So God can use anything to speak to us. And here he uses this field and he says, I considered it in my heart. Notice he says, well. When I saw it, I considered it well. He thought about it very closely and very carefully. He thought about what does this mean? What does this field represent? What is it saying to to me, what is the lesson from it? And the lesson is in verse 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and you need and your need like an armed man. I want to call your attention to a repeating word in verse 33. And it's the word little. Notice he says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Now repeating words are important. When you study the Bible, you need to notice and recognize repeating words. And he says... A little sleep, little slumber, little folding of the hands. What do you mean folding of the hands? You know when you're lying down? My friend Garth would probably describe, do it, he'd go, you know, like describe when you lie down, you're getting ready to sleep. He always describes it that way. And he, like you fold your hands, you do this, you know. And, and the one thing that we see from this, this repeating word is that the margin of these things is very small. He doesn't say a lot of sleep, a lot of slumber, a lot of folding of the hands to rest. He's saying all it takes is a little. The margin for error here is very small, and the implications of that. Now, what are you saying? You're not for sleep? You're against sleep? God's against sleep? No, he's fine with sleep. But it's talking about sleep and laziness that is inappropriate. And God can define that for each one of us. For some of us, it's going to be a lot different than other people. But if we are engaged in laziness even the smallest amounts that can have incredible implications in our lives related to fruitfulness effectiveness at work all the things he's told us to work in because it's not just working at our jobs or it's relationships it's ministry it's all kinds of things the whole idea here is whatever small margin it is for you whatever that looks like for you it has big implications and so he calls us to work hard. He calls us to be faithful and diligent. And sometimes we get stumbled by the fact that whatever he's called us to, it's hard. <laughs> it's difficult. Yes, it is. He knows that. It's supposed to be hard. That's where growth, that's where stretching comes in. That's where development comes in. When you start something new, it's hard. 
After a while, you learn and get stretched and all of that, and you develop as a person. That's what God wants in us. He wants us developed. As believers, he wants us to grow in maturity. That happens by being stretched. That happens by being in difficult circumstances. That happens by having unmet expectations happen, where we think God should work a certain way and he doesn't, and then we realize that he knew what was best, or maybe we don't see that, and, but we trust that by faith. The point is, is that sanctification happens, us becoming more like Christ happens through being broken at times. And being broken means that I have things happen that I didn't expect, I didn't want, I didn't ask for, but yet he's using those things to bring me closer to him as I rely upon him. Jesus said, in this life, you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So there's tribulation in this life, there's difficulty, there's struggle, all those things, but there's also great victories, there's great uh, conquering things and, and being successful and overcoming. He's called us to live a life of overcoming things. So the margins are smaller than what we think. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands, a little sleep and all these things. We have to be very careful about the level at which we ease off. Let him define that, what that means for us. Because there's implications for it. And he says there's a, there's a great lesson in it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, Paul wrote to the church of Colossae and said this, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Do it faithfully as to the Lord. He's the one that's watching. He says, not as to men. Don't do things for man's approval, for what man thinks of you. Do it for what God thinks, because he's the one that's watching all the time, and it blesses him. Everything that we do, that we're called to do, blesses him, and it matters to him. And he calls us to do it as unto him, and, and as, as an expression of, of, of worship. And he says there, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So there is a reward coming, as we're faithful to what he's called us to do. And he's going to love to give us those rewards, those crowns, on that day at the judgment seat of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for chapter 24. We're looking forward to the next chapter, Lord, what you have for us. We pray, Father, that you would use these verses, God. We help us, help us, Lord, to be faithful to what you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, to be faithful stewards. Help us, Lord, to be busy about your business. Help us, Father, to, to process all these verses in a way that would please you. We want to interact with the with the lost the right way. We want to speak up. We want to rebuke the wicked when you call us to do it. We want to preach the gospel to them. We don't want to envy them. We want to learn all the lessons that you want us to learn so that we don't have to feel like we're missing something because we're not fellowshipping with them or not living like they're living. So we just thank you for these lessons. We thank you for all these verses. We're wealthy because of the revelation that you've given us. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.